On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talked with Dr. Aaron Simmons about Pentecostalism. So this is a brand new series we're doing on different faith traditions, and we're learning directly from those within them. We hope to promote a strong spirit of charity and curiosity within each of these interviews that leads us to a better understanding of those who are within these different denominations. So we're going to cover some of the similar topics in each of these episodes that we do. So just understanding what is Pentecostalism, how is Pentecostalism connected to the great tradition of the church, what's unique about Pentecostalism, what areas within Pentecostalism are most susceptible to critique, or maybe the the areas that often get the most questions from those who aren't Pentecostal. And which Pentecostal theologians should non-Pentecostals read to better understand the tradition? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And in being serious, we don't want to be uh, serious in a way that's a jerk sort of serious. We want to be serious with serious with Christian virtues such as charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we think there is a way to both be rigorous, but also to be gentle and kind and open to reason. And we want to promote those sort of things with how we posture ourselves in the podcast, online, and everywhere else as well. Now, today we are kicking off starting a new series where we're going to talk to uh, different people from different faith traditions to try to understand more about their own traditions. So I think probably 50, 60, 70% of our listeners are Baptists, um, but we want to get an understanding of other different perspectives. So I think probably at least in the online world, a lot of the time when we that people want to talk about different denominations, it's uh, critical in a way of, I'm not actually going to talk to somebody who believes that. I'm going to try to read X, or Y, or Z, and then give a critical review of it. But we, what we've wanted to do here is to actually get people who believe these things and to pick their brains and learn what the best pieces and thinking is from them. Uh, I think that's the best way to understand other faith traditions, is to hear from them themselves and to hear what's beautiful and great and good about those things uh, instead of just simply being negative only. And that will, I think, give a better appreciation for the breadth uh, of the Christian faith, uh, of those who are trying to find and practice the way of the Christian life. So I'm really looking forward to introducing you to Dr. Aaron Simmons, who is at Furman University. He can tell you a little bit more about himself. But Aaron, before we get jump into everything, why don't you give me a brief bio of just who you are, because I would guess a good segment of our listeners aren't familiar with you or your work. And then either, what is, have you always been a Pentecostal? What is it that drew you to this? And what is it that made you th- write some on th- this topic? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me here. It's really an honor and uh, it's great to meet you, Jordan and Brandon, and look forward to our time together. So let me start there with that uh, last question, and then we'll back into my professional life. So yeah, I have uh, been raised in the Pentecostal Church, uh, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. I now attend an Assemblies of God uh, church. And you know, as we say in, in my tradition, you know, I was teethed on the Redback Hymnal, and uh, you know, grew up uh, in church in ways that really have defined my identity before I had an identity that I thought about defining. And I am a fourth generation Pentecostal. My grandfather was a pastor. Uh, E.T. Height was a pastor in the Church of God. My grandmother was also a minister. Um, one of my uncles was a very famous um, evangelist and missionary um, in the Church of God as well. So, yeah, it's not so much that I, you know, found myself as a teenager looking around and you know visiting with some friends and found this church and got involved or whatever. For me, this is the core and crux of who I am in ways that then I more spent time thinking about, so what does that then entail and what does that mean? Um, I did go to grad school and uh, I am now a professional philosopher. And so, you know, there were some moments in grad school where I spent a lot of time reflecting on, do I still identify this way? Is this still something I can live into as true? And it was actually doing work 
um, on Soren Kierkegaard that kind of really reinvigorated my uh, identity as a Pentecostal. <clears throat> and the reason for that is because an awful lot of what goes on um, in sort of the popular Christian writing world, and here I'm thinking mainly about like the popular apologetics industry, you know, it's a very rationalist sort of game, right? It's, you know, <clears throat> is there a God? Does God look this way? What are these arguments? Why would you be irrational not to think what I think? And I'm in grad school. I had just graduated from Lee University, which is also a Church of God-affiliated uh, denominational school. Both my parents were professors there. Again, you know, my, my identity was sort of shaped deeply uh, by this church connection. And I get to grad school. I'm studying all these different scary names that I had been warned about in college, you know, Foucault and Nietzsche and Heidegger and Derrida and all this stuff. And what I kept running into was Man, the the rationalist approach to Christian living just left me cold. It wasn't that I thought the arguments were bad. Uh, I just didn't see how they got me where they thought it was trying to take someone. And Nietzsche has this line where he says somewhere that, you know, what you gain through argument, you can lose through argument. And even though I want to hold beliefs based in good reasons, and I want to be justified in the claims that I hold to be true, and I want to live in light of those true beliefs— religion and faith and this specifically Pentecostal Christianity, it was never just about belief. It was always a way of life in what we might say in a kind of ancient Greek sense was what philosophy always had been. And so I hit Kierkegaard, who talks about faith as a highest passion. He talks about living in truth rather than just affirming truth. He thinks about the how of religious life rather than just the what or the content of religious propositions. And for me, that that just saying, it hit the right note. And so one of the reasons that I still identify publicly as a Pentecostal, <clears throat> excuse me, is because I think that there's something powerful about the affective dimension of existence, whether or not one is religious, right? We are affected beings. We feel before we believe. We hope before we know in some deep sense. <clears throat> and Pentecostalism for me names that affect-heavy version of religious life. And so why am I a Christian? Because I hope God looks like Jesus. Why am I a Pentecostal? Well, because I was raised in it, but also because I think church should be something um, and Christian living should be something that connects to the full experience of embodied life, not just something that we affirm as propositions or live out as faith statements. <clears throat> faith at its most basic is trust. And, uh, you know, as a philosopher, I think a lot about those issues. And so now I'm a professional philosopher, uh, work primarily in postmodern philosophy of religion. I'm the president of the Soren Kierkegaard Society here in the USA. Um, do a lot of work on deconstruction, on phenomenology. And so, you know, I've I've sort of combined the things that very few people think combine well. <laughs> you know, it, it's one thing to be a Pentecostal. Very few of them are also postmodernists. It's one thing to be a philosopher and a Christian, but rarely do you find Pentecostal postmodern philosophers, right? And in doing this, it's it's required a lot of rethinking of my identity. And so, for example, um, I no longer identify as an evangelical for political reasons because I identify on the left. And I think evangelicalism no longer represents where I stand in light of my Christian commitments. But theologically, I'm still affect-driven by a pneumatologically infused conception of who God is and how God relates to the world. So I'm still Pentecostal and try to represent that as, as much as I can. Yeah, well, we'll have to get you on to talk about some of those other topics that you research on, because I think those are fascinating. And not many Christians are interested in those sort of things, I think. But anyway, sorry. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> yeah, let's let's kind of move forward with a two-part question. So I guess the, the first part is like maybe you're 30 to 60 second, you know, you're in an elevator with somebody, they say, what is Pentecostalism? And you yeah. the, you give them the core tenets, like this is how you would define Pentecostalism. But then part two of that question is like, tell us the historical story about um, how Pentecostalism came to be. What movement did it, did it grow out of? And when, you know, when did that happen? Who were some of the key figures that we need to know about? <laughs> yeah. So let me preface this by saying, 
Uh, I'm a philosopher, not a historian or a theologian, and so there are much better people than I to tell the fuller story of this. Um, So this will definitely be a kind of philosophically filtered version (laughs) of some of that history. Um, But my 30-second elevator pitch for Pentecostalism, I've got two different options. Um, The one I like the best is Pentecostals think that you should run during church and eat spaghetti immediately afterwards. So that's what Pentecostalism is for me, right? Because it's affective. It's it's a matter of being fully embodied and being in relationship and thinking that that should be freaking fun. And so, yeah, like the drum should be kicking and the snare drum should be, you know, hitting on two and four or even on the backbeats. And, the, the you know, like that's what we should be doing because God probably likes more fun music. Um, the more technical definition would be Pentecostalism is a spirited version of Protestant Christianity that takes very, very seriously the role of spirit, the role of um, the animated capacities of God to be personally related to us as bodies. And so that's, of course, something we can unpack. Um, I like Amos Young's definition where he says Pentecostalism is Christianity that is defined by a pneumatological imagination where we envision the world according to the spirit. Um, I, I like Jamie Smith's version of this where he talks about the idea that, you know, Pentecostalism is something that is rooted in an affective epistemology where we're interested in feeling as the condition of knowing. I think all of that's true. Now, How did this sort of arise? Where did it come from? Well, again, there are others who've written this story at great length. Um, And and I would uh, encourage people to check those those authors out. Dale Coulter's doing great work in this area. Um, You know, the Like a Mighty Army, one of the great books in the Church of God, which um, comes from Charles Kahn, you know, traces the history of Pentecostalism in specific denominational ways. But maybe the simplest story would go like this. Pentecostalism in America finds its roots in really unlikely places for social movements. It's it's in the mountains of North Carolina and and it's little tiny country churches and country pastors who were, you know, praying that God show up and what started happening was this gift of tongues that they couldn't quite understand and went looking for explanations. Um, And that then led to a variety of other sorts of outpourings and manifestations of God's spirit. But it's important to understand that this is going on in the last couple decades of the 19th century. (laughs) And none of it was, oh, we're trying to find the outpouring we see or the signs and wonders we see in Acts 2. It was they were just getting together to seek God and stuff started happening. <laughs> and, and as it started happening, they went and looked for biblical explanations and said, oh, well, this sounds like what we see uh, here in Acts 2 and these different outpourings of God. <clears throat> well, it sort of grew slowly, really took off uh, in 1905-06 when you started having the Azusa Street Revival out in um, Los Angeles, and this was under the leadership of William Seymour, an African-American uh, preacher, and that really became national news. And as a result of that occurring there in the West Coast, you started having more attention given to these smaller, you know, revivalistic spaces that had been popping up throughout the Appalachian Mountains and also some in the Midwest. <clears throat> and what I would say that was really interesting about early Pentecostalism is it was a a very inclusive movement on the ground. Now, there were always still deeply problematic racist and sexist dimensions that were occurring at the seminaries and in training and the sort of power structure of American Christianity. But it was... You know, women like Amy Simple McPherson starting the Church of the Four Square Gospel. It was, you know, African-American leaders like William Seymour founding the Azusa Street Revival. And 
this comes from the idea that, you know, God will pour, pour God's spirit out on all flesh, right? That this was something that ruptured the social categories by which we narrate social identity and social status. It turns out that uh, early Pentecostals just didn't think that God's spirit um, needed to operate according to our social demarcations. And as it grew, then, you know, things started changing. And um, Pentecostalism then eventually got to the point where some larger denominations, the Church of God, the Assemblies of God, um, Pentecostal Holiness, Foursquare, um, Church of God in Christ, a, a predominantly African-American Pentecostal denomination, all started emerging, becoming more publicly involved. This then, of course, um, connected to and navigated with the emergence of evangelical groups um, coming out and uh, being involved in neo-evangelicalism in the 1950s and 60s. So Pentecostalism now, um, and I find this something that's lamentable, a lot of people would take issue with this claim, but I think the evangelicalization of Pentecostalism is deeply detrimental to the profoundly social justice orientation of what God's spirit and God's engagement on all flesh looked like in that first and second and third generation. And ultimately, uh, there was a lot of backlash for these early folks, right? The, the uh, local church leaders thought this was dangerous and problematic, and so you had lots of persecution. You know, churches were burned, people were uh, beat up. There was a lot of violence, a lot of animosity towards early Pentecostals. And yet they continued to persevere and stand for justice for their neighbors and, and love for even their enemies. So it's a tradition that I find to speak to the kind of Christian life I hope to live. Um, I don't spend a lot of time, even as a philosopher, engaging in some of the narrow debates about gatekeeping and who gets to count. So I am what Jamie Smith would call a big tent Pentecostal um, or a lowercase p Pentecostal, which is, look, I, I figure as many as want to find themselves internal to this pneumatologically informed, affectively infused version of Christian life, come on. So I am not somebody who thinks you know, that you need the initial evidence of speaking in tongues to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as this dimension that then allows Pentecostalism to have, you know, all of these, you know, fivefold gospel manifestations. My view is, I figure God can work however God chooses. And uh, I've never spoken in tongues, for example, but I've grown up in that reality. And so I see that as a thing that goes on in these sorts of spaces. But uh, I think loving the poor uh, as infused by the Spirit of God is probably way more interesting than watching gold dust fall or speaking in tongues while ignoring your fellow neighbors. And so uh, ultimately, maybe that's that's a good place to stop and maybe it'll pro you know, project us into some other questions. Yeah, I mean, I think you, a lot in there I'm curious about you teasing out. One thing, you know, you mentioned kind of the at least in America, the historical progression and growth of it. Is there, you know, when you think about Pentecostalism and you think about the great tradition of the Christian faith from, from the apostles, is there a way you think of Pentecostalism as hooked up and connected in that long line? Because uh, I think depending on who I've talked to in the past, there's been sometimes a tendency to say, you know, there was just kind of like almost like underground for however many years until it emerges at a period of time. But is there a way to say, no, it's we're connected in these particular ways, whether it's, you know, I can think of all sorts of various mystical sort of medievals who, in my mind, from outside looking in, seem to have similar trajectories, similar dispositions at least, uh, to Pentecostalism. So how would you say it's connected? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, and again, as with all good questions, uh, the the frame by which we understand the question shapes the kind of answer we give. And so um, as a historian, I, I will plead ignorance on, you know, tracing these lines, right? But as a philosopher, <clears throat> I think that one of the really interesting things is, again, not trying to be rigid in our definitional specificity but allow for what I would describe as a kind of glorious vagueness 
<laughs> that makes possible uh, living in light of divine mystery. So I wrote an article a few years ago um, that talked about Kierkegaard and Pentecostal philosophy. The original title of that essay was <laughs> a Pentecostal Kierkegaard question mark. Um, and the reviewers hated it. They're like, he's clearly not a Pentecostal. And I was like, well, yeah, not in any sort of technical sense that he would recognize, but let's walk through these ideas. Let's walk through a concern for justice as a dimension of Christian living. Let's talk about the affective narrative conception of truth and epistemology. <clears throat> let's look at the way in which a robust awareness of a spirited reality that outstrips our cognitive faculties. Like Kierkegaard's on board with all that stuff, right? And so <clears throat> my thought was, Kierkegaard, in my sense of this broader notion of Pentecostal, I'm not trying to say he's Pentecostal, but his work, his life models what I think Pentecostals should also be celebrating, right? And this is true for a lot of different thinkers. I would say Marguerite Poirot uh, is a, a you know mystical Beguin writer who, my goodness, understands the dynamics of relational love in ways that I I think, resonate with my tradition as a Pentecostal. Um, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, like th these are names that help me, as I read them, make sense of what it looks like to live in light of divine mystery in embodied ways. So would we say that mystical experiences recounted by these um, you know, medieval thinkers are the thing that happens in glossolalia? I don't know. Um, but I think we're probably better off recognizing that glossolalia, again, is not some sort of threshold concept that we check the box of so we can teach at a particular school by signing a faith statement. Glossolalia is this awareness that an embodied encounter with the divine is going to wreck us in all sorts of good ways. And it seems to me that mystical, apophatic traditions get that right. And so whether we call it Pentecostal or not, um, that's a tradition I'm cool with hooking up with, right? Yeah. I, I think that uh, finding reasons to see a line that runs through it um, is something that, again, helps us de-evangelicalize Pentecostalism today. We're now, we're not trying to figure out how do we fit with the National Association of Evangelicals, um, but we instead think, how are we fitting with the radical humility we see in Meister Eckhart? When he's so worried about idolatry that he says, I pray God rid me of God, right? Maybe by engaging in what Pete Rollins refers to as, drawing from Merrill Westfall, atheism for Lent, where we actually strip away our assumptions about the divine, opens us up to the plenitude of divinity. That seems really deeply Pentecostal to me, but not in a hegemonic way, right? It's not trying to take over something I think is good. It's just trying to reanimate a tradition that I think far too often gets reduced to what we see in, you know, people like Paula White. And I, I don't want anything to do with that. Well, I, that kind of maybe sort of leads into my next question. So, uh, and I think this this question is particularly interesting to me to ask of someone um, who is actually in the tradition, you know, it's easy to, to look from the outside into a tradition and say, okay, this is the area that they're open um, to critique. You know, this, this is the weakness of a particular tradition, but you as a Pentecostal, as an insider, you know, uh, in the best sense of the word, what do you think are the areas that, that Pentecostalism is most open to critique from the outside? Mm. No, such a good question. And, and I think that, they are not radically unique. Uh, I think it's the broad areas that all Christianity should be radically receptive to uh, when it comes to critique. But let me try to give some content to that that's uh, maybe more narrowly Pentecostally oriented. So the first is the idea, look, power is tempting. And when you are in a tradition that is very embodied and active— um, the energy levels can sometimes be the thing you're selling, right? So you become this like great motivational speaker who's able to keep your audience just absolutely enraptured by what you're saying. And then you end up seeking the experience rather than the relationship by which the experience occurs. So it'd be sort of like me saying, man, I, I sure love hiking in the mountains. Who I hike with is irrelevant. 
I'm like, well, no, no, no. The whole point of hiking is to be with the person in the mountains. And the mountains becomes the context for that relationship to develop in the experiences. And so I think far too often contemporary Pentecostalism has adopted a power structure of aligning itself with a particular model of corporate, popular, capitalistic models, and then says, hey, we'll show our significance by having more people in the pews, more people, quote unquote, baptized in the Holy Spirit, more people, you know, running around on social media, etc. I I, I have no problem with churches being big, right? People like being where people like being. That that That's fine. But we've got to be really aware and really careful of the showiness rather than realizing that the canonic logic articulated in the person of Christ is one that invites confidence grounded in humility. And I admit, I don't see a lot of humility from some of the rock star Pentecostal uh, voices that we see in the press and on the media and on TV and, you know, visiting with presidents. So, A, we should be wary of power, wary of the show. Uh, Two, we can think that this leads to a kind of uh, self-glorifying and self-protective theological manifestation. I was once at a uh, Pentecostal church <clears throat> auditioning to play drums. Uh, I was a professional drummer for a long time. And <clears throat> the ministerial group, you know, set me down after I auditioned and whatever. And they said, you know, we're really concerned that we see a lot of intellect in you. You've got the head religion, but we don't see a lot of heart and spirit in you. And I said, well, that's an interesting critique coming from Baptists that went non-denominational in order to celebrate, you know, charismatic religion. And you're talking to a fourth generation Pentecostal who's been raised in this space. Um, I think the difference is actually I'm an academic, right? And y'all aren't like, that's probably what we're realizing, but that doesn't make me better or worse. And I said, I think we've got to be really careful because what you're calling spirit Sounds an awful lot like someone who's just reflecting the particular emotive manifestations that you've come to equate with God's presence. But as far as I'm concerned, the tiny Presbyterian church down the road that you all would refer to as the frozen chosen probably has more of God's spirit every time they reach out and show hospitality to the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. So I just don't care that much about being spirited as a manifestation that other people get to look at and think that you're holier or that you've really got Jesus figured out or God's really present at your church because look, we had whatever go on. I think that that is ripe for critique because I think it's an active turn away from what God calls us to. And the third area, so A, power, two, a kind of showy, uh, again, capitalistic, I've got the better car, so I must be better at life kind of model. And the third would be um, a resistance to critique because, though I said earlier, it was the affective dimension that attracted me away from the hyper-rationalistic. One of the problems, though, is we can also take that too far and quickly begin to think um, that you know, God's anointed, as it were, are those people in the pulpits who can say anything regardless of how irrational or conspiracy laden or false it is, so long as they continue to then be manifesting these gifts of the Spirit. I I think we should probably look a lot more at the gifts of the Spirit, you know, that are are patience and kindness, right? I don't think those are the kinds of things we see as much right now. Uh, I think we've allowed a particular kind, again, of evangelical culture war to infect what should be a life ruptured and wrecked by a canonic God. So we do need to think well in Pentecostal churches. And thankfully, there's been amazing Pentecostal theologians and historians and sociologists doing great work that invite this sort of deep, rigorous, robust academic life. But as a tradition, uh, you know, Mark Knoll is not entirely wrong, though I think he's maybe a little uncharitable, to locate Pentecostals as one of the main sources for the, you know, scandal of there being no evangelical mind, right? So somehow we've got to realize that affect doesn't mean shut your brain and your mind off. 
But it might mean that we realize in light of the humility of God's presence that um, there's a lot we don't understand. And so maybe that should then translate into a hospitality and a humility shown to other people within our social spaces rather than what is far too often um, a not too thinly veiled narrative of our own greatness that then reflects the historical markers of social privilege. Right. Instead of it being this great movement of inclusion, it ends up somehow sliding back into a pretty white nationalist, uh, patriarchal, homophobic society. And as far as I'm concerned, that also is something I see as anti-Christ. So I don't think there's anything unique about those aspects to Pentecostalism, those, those critiques. But I do think they are distinctive in the way that Pentecostalism faces those temptations to power, to the show, and to emotionalism that shuts down kindness and good thought. Yeah. So one other question I have for you on on that sort of topic. Is Pentecostalism, is it like married to sort of a canonic account of, I guess, the Incarnation and the Trinity sort of thing? So I think... A lot of people, at least in my context, when they think Pentecostalism, they probably equate that with something like modalism in the Trinity, and they equate it with you know a canonic version of the Incarnation where he's giving up divine attributes or something like that. So is that a fair representation where it is pretty hooked up to this, or it's not, or it's just case by case? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, uh, as with any tradition, right, it it depends on which theologian and which speaker and which view and which book. Um, There is in Pentecostalism every bit as dynamic and robust uh, a debate about all of the central theological tenets as you would find in any tradition. But for my my perspective on this is to say um, the role of what I call a canonic logic is so central to Pentecostalism because – It's not so much that God gives up divine characteristics as it is that God embodies the goodness of the human condition rather than inviting us to an escapist logic of um, self-aggrandization, right? Far too often we tend to think about Christianity as this uh, escape hatch or rope or ladder that's, you know, thrown down into the pit of the human condition and we can get out And so the goal then in this kind of conversionistic manifestation is go get a bunch of people to climb the ladder with you, right? Go save the souls. Well, I don't know. And here I am definitely um, speaking for myself, not any broader tradition. But as far as I'm concerned, the affective embodied reality of God's spirit being a comforter who is sent to be with Right. This radical withness that is announced when, you know, I'm sending someone who will be with you, even though I've got to leave, says Christ. I I think that what that means is it helps us rethink the incarnation itself as not an escape plan from humanity, but a restoration and rethinking of the glorified nature of what is possible within the human condition. It's important that when we think about, you know, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus rarely talks about it as being somewhere else, right? It's always here and at hand and nigh. Why? Because as Bonhoeffer puts it, when we look to the light of the world hanging on the cross, we can't stare there very long. We'll go blind. But instead, we look at all the others who are needy and embodied standing at the foot of the cross alongside us. So, yeah, I think... There is a deep kenosis aspect in the Christological dimensions by which a pneumatological imagination proceeds. So in other words, I don't think that you can be pneumatologically um, invested without being Christologically anchored, right? It's, it's the person of Christ as God in fleshed and in relationship walking with that we get any sort of indication of what it would mean then to see the world as spirited, as animated and activated by the presence and continued walking with of of God. So I don't know if that answers the question in a technical sense, but I think we do need to be very careful not to um, 
let me put it this way. I was once interviewing for a job at a evangelical college that I won't mention. <clears throat> um, but I was talking about the importance of kenosis as this logic for democratic life and social existence and trying to say, look, if we take kenosis seriously, we should be then the maximally hospitable, maximally inclusive, maximally outpoured and open. We should be the ones inviting criticism rather than protecting ourselves from it. And one of the other professors there got really angry and he said, look, kenosis makes no sense unless you have a strong theology to begin with. And I was like, well, I don't know how you would have a theology as a Christian except as anchored in the canonic message and person of Christ. And that's where I land, right? So unless we go through the lived embodiment of a God who walks with us, I don't know what it means to then talk about the predicates that articulate or obtain relative to the necessary being theos, right? Like I, I think our theology is always an emergent reality from the task of living into the truth that was present. And that's what I think the spirit then invites us to continue to have support in doing. I'd like to ask you about what is at least a, speaking as a, as an outsider here, what is at least a perceived connection or at least what looks like a close relationship between Pentecostalism and what we could call the prosperity gospel um, or a, the word of faith, the faith healing movements and things like that. Um, and it seems like you have a genuine heart for the poor and, and the most vulnerable among us. And it seems that those movements uh, at their worst, let's just say, prey on the most vulnerable uh, in some ways that seem really hard to, to deal with. So maybe help me understand the relationship or maybe lack of relationship between Pentecostalism historically and now and how you understand it uh, to those other movements. And, and is it, is it, is it a, a, um, a corruption of, of Pentecostalism or is it something altogether different that somehow joined uh, sociologically? How, how did that happen? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because whenever I talk about Pentecostalism, I'm always super nervous because the vast majority of assumptions people have about Pentecostals, if they simply don't identify with that tradition, whether Christian or not, um, rarely hook up with what I mean when I say I'm a Pentecostal. And this is one of those central areas, right? <clears throat> so prosperity gospels, um, I would say it's, it's not just it's a corruption of Pentecostalism. I would say that it's an abandonment and an actively um, – an active rejection of everything Christ calls us to. Now, does that mean Christ doesn't call us to have life and have it more abundantly? Not at all. It's just that I don't see anywhere in scripture or in Christ's um, life where we are to confuse abundant joy and, you know, life with being better than someone else articulated in terms of private property. Now, does that mean, and again, I can hear all the critiques, but wait a minute, you're misunderstanding X2. Well, maybe, but I think it's really important that we see the moment that says the spirit is outpoured, they're speaking in other tongues, right? As the spirit gives utterance, they're ministering. And then it also talks about that many came into the community and then they started selling all they had to care for all the needs of those in the community, right? So even if that doesn't mean down with capitalism and private property as a concept, which I'm not suggesting that it does, I do think it should give a significant pause about the ease with which we allow a capitalistic narrative of success to be united with our Christian conception of divine favor. So, I mean, think about it. What, what does divine favor tend to look like in Scripture? It, it, it tends to look really, really scary, right? It, it looks like, you know, stories of Stephen getting hit with stones but seeing God in the process. It looks like Peter being, you know, uh, hung, you know, in this radically horrifying way. It looks like Jesus, as James Cone rightly talks about, being lynched. So 
the idea of thinking about Christianity as something that just reinforces our narratives of whiteness and maleness and cisgenderedness, I think are radical distortions, not of Pentecostalism, but of the message of Christ that we were called to carry into the world of embodied need and vulnerability. So what would I say to those prosperity gospel people? Well, just not much because I'm not going to be at their churches, <laughs> right? So I think it's unfortunate that so many people are, but it's not surprising, like I said before, because we like being where people like being. And people like being around things that make them look like, ooh, I'm cool too. And so we've allowed almost like influencer culture where you've got lots of people who know nothing about what they're talking about but have a lot of people listening to them and so therefore are designated as experts become what we now look for in pastors and preachers. So I think it's a problem when we have um, highly visible religious people who especially then identify with Pentecostalism, I think it's a big problem when they become gratuitously willing to let wealth be part of the signal of their uh, relation to God. I think that this uh, does prey on the poor. I think it does abuse the neediness in our society. I, I find it horrifying. And here I'll get political for a minute as if I wasn't already. Um, I think it's horrifying that you've got Pentecostal pastors actively standing, again, but bigger than Pentecostals, but standing against mask mandates and standing against public health policy and not standing for, you know, protecting the weakest and most vulnerable, the immunocompromised and those who can't get vaccinated. Why in the world would we not be saying whatever anyone else does, we will love the most vulnerable, period. And if it turns out the most vulnerable don't agree with us politically, we will continue to stand with them because the goal was never agreement. The goal was love. So, yeah, in, in the most unambiguous terms I can possibly articulate, um, the prosperity gospel is what Kierkegaard would call demonic um, because it is radically distorting and inverting the narrative of Christ. Um, but so is... Christian nationalism. So is um, anything that would try to stand against narratives of structural injustice and an awareness of how marginalization has occurred in historical ways. All of that is an attempt to allow a inverted Christ to be the Christ that we worship because it turns out we're not worshiping the God who stood with those who were broken and beaten and lynched in our societies, but we now are somehow associating that God with the crowds who cheer on the lynching. And I mean this, again, in a James Cone literal way. I think unless we're able to ask repentance for the ways in which we've narrated our own greatness as now facilitated by the story of God, we are not yet thinking well enough about the idea that God comes in and says, what you expected is not who I am. Right, I came as a servant in the most lowliness that I could possibly present. Kierkegaard says somewhere that it's only in lowliness that we connect with Christ. And that then becomes the elevation. But somehow we think it's in the elevation and the exaltation that we get out of the lowliness. And that's entirely, entirely backwards. Now, this vision you've sketched for Pentecostalism, I would imagine— probably a good amount of listeners are thinking, that's not what comes to mind when I think Pentecostalism. So what are the Pentecostal theologians, philosophers, pastors that we should be reading to get the best of this sort of Pentecostal tradition to understand? And I'm thinking for those who just aren't familiar with Pentecostalism in general and want to understand more, where would you recommend going? So it's interesting. The, the thing that I would say without qualification— is uh, go listen and watch the sermons and services of William Barber, right? The, you you want to see what Pentecostalism looks like in the mode that I'm trying to advocate for it. Why do I still identify as a Pentecostal? <clears throat> William Barber encapsulates that pretty well. But of course, he's coming out of a more, you know, African-American tradition in this space. So it's important also to realize that you know, there have been powerful 
um, people of color since William Seymour articulating the kind of Pentecostalism that I think resonates in this liberationist and womanist sort of way. Um, that said, there are also um, voices across the spectrum saying things that can facilitate this. So uh, Dale Coulter, uh, a Pentecostal historian and theologian, recently has been writing about uh, rethinking you know, masculinist language for God. And why that's radically unbiblical. And so trying to undermine some of the patriarchy that then infects our theological imaginations. Uh, Chris Green is doing fabulous work rethinking the racism that even though Pentecostalism has some origins in interestingly inclusive ways, the racism quickly showed up and then became an overlay on the way it then moved forward and found social prominence. So um, th these are voices, I think, that are really, really important. Amos Young's doing this sort of work relative to disability and rethinking ableism and the way that we understand access. So it, it's, again, it's not something that I think is unique. Uh, it, it's inviting people to say, look, if the only people you're reading look like people who are part of the power structure it's probably the case that there is at some level, not always, but at some level, a reinforcement of that power structure as obvious. And I would encourage, uh, he's not a Pentecostal, but I would encourage everyone to take a look at John Sanders' new book called Embracing Prodigals, which is all about using cognitive linguistics to interrogate the way that um, our models of God and the church and society break into authoritative or nurturant spaces. And he argues that the authoritative model, which is prominently on display in white evangelicalism in America, actively corrupts, distorts, and moves at cross-purposes to the God of Scripture that we find revealed in Christ. So he's not a Pentecostal, but I think he's, again, getting us to that space where we've got to start saying, maybe what it means um, is to—here's a sort of weird way to put it— Maybe we need to stop listening so much to Hillsong and start listening a little bit more to what's going on in black gospel music, because it turns out the the content is different. <laughs> the orientation is distinctive. I was talking yesterday to one of my classes and we were looking at a Kirk Franklin song, uh, One, Two, Three, Victory. And in there, he's got this beginning that starts off, one, two, three, get up, we got victory, right? And that line, that melody is actually a motive, a motif that comes from hip hop that starts in KRS-One, Stop the Violence campaign, gets repeated by the Fugees in the song Vocab, gets deployed by Blackstar in their song Definition. And all of these songs have that same melodic repetition. So when Kirk Franklin appropriates that, right? It's unlikely that big swaths of white evangelical listeners are tracking with that history that's happening in the music. But then when he says, I just got laid off, <laughs> right? But I'm good. I ain't even got the house paid off, but I'm good, right? The whole idea is he's talking about structural injustice nested in redlining policies that are being activated and reflected in the history of the violence campaigns and the social justice activism in hip-hop. And so this is why at the end of one of his performances of that song, again, we, white Protestant Christian types, are likely to hear it and just say, yes, victory in Christ, woo! But what he does is plays this song, and at the end of this track, there's this one performance where everybody then turns around and they all throw up signs and pull off shirts that say Black Lives Still Matter. So we can't hear one, two, three, victory the way that it can be heard for those who, in fact, have already an eye toward the workings and realities of how power has distorted the Christian life. But when we start opening up, listening more, passing the mic, another hip-hop trajectory, right? We become, I think, receptive to the way that our tradition is messed up if we don't realize that the language of our is already something that reflects the divisions of social power throughout history. So 
I have a lot of things I'd like to ask as far as follow-ups and stuff, but but I, we're running short on time. So I want to ask you because you've 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 noted that that Pentecostalism has this um, focus on the affective on and on experience, and then also what you've just said about you know rethinking masculine language when it comes to God. What is the relationship um, that you think? Uh, Pentecostalism should have and 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 does have to the the historic Christian creeds uh, and confessions of the faith. So um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm thinking Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, um, Chalcedon, and then you know, moving forward to the historic Protestant confessions. Um, I think this is an important question because uh, you you've emphasized the affective, but I'm I'm trying to get at what is the the relationship to like objective. Um, you know, propositional doctrine, which um, I know we don't want to make the entire Christian faith about that. Uh, but of course, we can't just totally throw it away either. We actually, there's some content to what it is we say we believe um, with our minds. So help us understand the relationship w- with Pentecostalism to that. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. There, There's never a context-free utterance. So um, what's funny about that question, um, not haha, but hmm, is most of my work in postmodern philosophy of religion has been defending the importance of what I call determinate religious belief and identity and practice. So what I do is contend as a professional for the importance of not simply saying, uh, well, the name of God is endlessly translatable into other names such that you end up evacuating something that it would mean to identify, as Kierkegaard says, uh, as becoming a Christian, right? And I also think that this is deeply patronizing to people of different faiths, of different religions, of different cultural backgrounds. If we can't disagree, if we can't say, well, I think what you're saying there is not the way I would say it, and here's why, we're ending up um, either anonymizing their faith as just a version of our own, which is colonialist in all the wrong ways and imperialist in bad ways, or we're not taking them seriously because we're not actually listening well enough to understand, no, they think I'm wrong, (laughs) right? So then we're not receptive to critique. So somehow we've got to think well about the determinacy of religious identity and commitment. So that's what I spend most of my day job doing, right, is fighting for that determinacy. Um, This is what I call religion with religion as a response to Derrida's notion of religion without religion. And it's not a rejection of Derrida. It's trying to say, no, I'm a Derridian. But I think that we can still be very determinate and articulate about the content of belief internal to the life of faith. That said, when I speak to... um, broadly religious folk (laughs) in a non-postmodern audience, I'm almost always arguing the opposite direction because I think what happens is both sides have slid too far to an extreme, right? So you've got the postmodern crowd, which has slid away from any kind of concern for propositional articulation relative to belief content and warranted assertability. And then on the other hand, we end up having, it's all about the rational defense. And hey, when, when they hit you with the problem of evil, go boom and hit them back with Plantinga's free will defense. Hey, hey. And we don't ever have to actually listen to each other, right? So- I appreciate the question because it allows me to make clear what I'm representing in this conversation up to this point has been very specifically arranged and articulated to the audience that I think far too often has heard in excess of the rational articulation that Christianity is about getting our beliefs right and checking boxes. And I think that then leads to a threshold concept of gatekeeping. Well, who gets to count? Who doesn't? How do we then police these borders? And I'm really uninterested in a lot of that work in the church. But as a philosopher, I'm really interested in what it means to think that our words are true and how truth functions. And do we have good reasons for the claims we make and the views we hold? And so how do these then come together? Um, However they come together, it should be modeled and held with humility. However it comes together, we should recognize the contingencies of linguistic utterance and the context by which language is already infused with and reflective of the ideologies and power structures that we've inherited as obvious. 
But in practice, look, I, I, I identify as a Christian. I'm trying to become one. And so I take really seriously that when I say uh, a canonic logic is articulated in the person of Christ, for me, that is a straight creedal conception <laughs> that Jesus isn't just a good person. Jesus is, you know, the second person of the Trinity articulated in uh, flesh for us, right? When it talks about um, for God so loving the world that God gave the Son, like for me, I, I think, yeah, that's articulating something as a state of affairs that is mind independent. But I don't read it as a claim about exclusivist soteriology. I read it about uh, articulation of God's being defined in love and charity and grace prior to being being the category by which we conceive of the divine. So my frustration with the creedal approaches is that it tends to think everything really, the game, is an ontological game. And I think that's actually... um, an importation of Greek metaphysics on a Hebraic conception that we probably would do well to try to get back to. But at the same time, do we abandon ontology and say, you know, kind of anything goes relativism in this sort of broadly postmodern space? Not at all. Anything goes is incoherent. And I couldn't even articulate the view I hold if anything went, (laughs) right? So I I like uh, some of the creedal theologies you know, I'm influenced some by the work of Billy Abraham, though I disagree with him about inclusion in the church. Um, I, I like the way he approaches this kind of narratival mode of creedal theology. I appreciate the way that people like um, Alistair McIntyre and, and Charles Taylor will articulate the social context in which narrative then gives rise to community formation in light of commitments that can be articulated in language. So, hermeneutics only works because we have some anchor, that there's some way of saying this community doesn't include just everything. But I guess I'm just less interested in that being something that the church spends a ton of time trying to wrestle with. I'd rather pastors spend more time um, showing the love of Christ rather than trying to make sure that the love of Christ is not understood in a way that then disagrees with their politics. And I'd rather the theologians, yeah, let's get together at conferences and bicker about this stuff all day long because it does matter. And we shape how then our pastors get trained at the seminaries. So I just think that there's different spaces where those intersections probably should be cashed out. I don't know if that's a a good answer or not, but it's the philosophical answer, right? It's me as postmodern hermeneutics guy trying to say, yes, I absolutely affirm the creeds. But I think affirming the creeds still requires that we be interpretively aware and recognize that the same sentence can mean a variety of things in light. And this is why we have traditions of scholarship thinking them through. Right. But I think that's cool. I I love the fact that, you know, in, in the New Testament, we see disciples disagreeing with each other and going in different ways. That doesn't mean that yay division. What it means is look, maybe we should pay more attention to the fact that the narrative of Christ is given in four different personal accounts. Why? Did God just not know how to say it in one? (laughs) Right? So the idea of, Brandon, as you say, the objective truth of these creeds, I, I would start pushing back not on the truth of the creeds part, but on the objective part. And I'd start saying, wait a minute, uh, look, I, I think there's something powerful about the fact that the truth is declared by Christ as just I am rather than, oh, here it is. I've got a pamphlet, <laughs> right? Here, here's the faith statement. It's like, well, no, faith statements are important for colleges and stuff because not it's what makes you a Christian, but it's what makes you now able to abide by a historically social institution that then is trying to make sure that it's replicating students in the way that accords with its donor base. I got no problem with that. I don't have to sign the faith statement if I disagree with the way they're articulating their identity, right? So yes to creeds, yes to hermeneutics, though. Yeah, you know what what I've I've liked about this conversation and particularly you is I do think naturally a good amount of our listeners are going to disagree with stuff that you've said. However, the way you've presented it and the way you've given it yourself, I think speaks to the ability to say, "Hey, we can still be friends and push back on each other and disagree and ha- we can throw some punches, uh, but we can still be cool afterwards." And, you know, I just That's right. I 
check to see if you were on Twitter and sure enough you are. And here, you know, we were talking about <laughs> trout fishing beforehand and, and you got Tacomas yeah, yeah. on here. I'm like, I'm a truck guy too. I love trucks. And I'm thinking, see? And I they think... should be lifted and, and they should be capable <laughs> off road. That's right. So I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, we could talk for like two more hours and maybe we do that, but we actually, we do it outdoors together and have a good conversation. Yeah, um, well, I think what you're saying is exactly right. And, and it's, it's hard. It's so, so, so hard. We, we live in a society um, globally increasingly, but especially in America, we, we live in a society where going to church in broadly, again, I'm speaking in very broad terms with plenty of exceptions, but in broadly predominantly white evangelical contexts in America, the sad thing is I have no doubt that you are more likely to stop and help somebody change a tire right? Regardless of their race or creed or identity or background or who they love or how they vote, you are going to give them the shirt off your back. Problem is, I think we then somehow are less likely to be the people who can stay in a conversation with that person once we discover that we disagree, <laughs> right? And I think, well, that sucks. Like we, We've got to get better at realizing charity is something that defines God in an essential way. Jean-Luc Marion is right to say it's not that God's not a being. God's at least a being. But what a boring conception. When I talk about my wife, if you say to me, tell me about your wife. And I'm like, y'all, the best thing is that she exists. And she can bear predicates that are ontologically substantive. Woo! Like, no. I, I have entirely misunderstood what it means to be in a 20-year loving relationship to my wife if that's the first spot that I go. But isn't that kind of what we tend to somehow reduce Christianity to so often? It's not that that's not important, right? Yes, of course. I can hear the objections. If my wife didn't exist, it'd be hard to love her. I get it. But again, I'm going to talk a long time before I think to pause and come back to the idea, oh, but she also exists. I'm going to start by saying, oh, my goodness, you've got to meet her. She is the most creative person I've ever met in my life. Right. So that's, I think, maybe, Brandon, another way of also getting at this. Yes, the creeds matter. But sometimes what we do with creeds is reduce them to making our interlocutors straw men, right? If you don't read it this way, then you're not a Christian. And so I'm not really having this conversation. I'm just trying to protect the flock from you. And so to be honest, which will un not un uh, be surprising to your listeners, I've been asked to leave a bunch of churches, not because I thought I was doing anything dangerous or disruptive. It broke my heart every single time, but it was because they viewed the questions I asked as divisive to the unity of the church. And I kept saying, maybe what you think the unity of the church is, is just the hegemony of your own social narrative that you can't allow to get challenged. Because suddenly you'd have to recognize that the Christ you're articulating may not be the Christ that is trouble for all of our idolatrous narratives of greatness. And yeah, man, like, Let's get together and go fishing. And, and I also think it's cool. Like I'm, yes, uh, on, I'm a progressive Christian, uh, but I drive a lifted truck. And yes, I am fully, fully, fully supportive of social equality, but I also love college football. Like we, we can be people who are complicated and don't fit just into the neat categories by which we exclude others as irrational or immoral. Yeah. Right. And so my worry is that when we start gatekeeping Christianity, we're not doing the professional important work of getting clear about our propositional utterances, but we're trying to make sure that they, those people, whoever they are, don't get in here and start infecting us. And that narrative of gatekeeping is actually much more akin to racism than it is to truth seeking. Yeah. I know. I, I think it's really important to find and protect those sort of activities and shared 
um, I guess loves that we all have that we, we can yeah. share no matter what you think. So uh, see, fishing. this is the spaghetti afterwards, man. <laughs> this is why we eat spaghetti. After. We run during because we are all embodied. We are all vulnerable. If you run into a wall, like I've seen lots of people do in my churches, it knocks you out, <laughs> right? Because we are bodies. Yeah. And then we eat afterwards because we recognize whatever went on in the service, we also have to figure out how to let Christianity be a lived dynamic of embodied engagement. And that's what, for me, Pentecostalism mm-hmm. appreciates by saying, you know, again, I have never spoken in tongues, but why do I affirm glossolalia? Because I'm pretty convinced that if I'm in an embodied relationship with the God of the universe, I'm not going to be able to articulate that. In reasonable and cognitively aware ways, it's going to rupture my language in a way that then forces my body to betray my ignorance. So heck yes, I affirm speaking in tongues, because why wouldn't we? (laughs) Right? Yeah. So I know you've got a website, jaronsimmons.wordpress.com. If you want to read more about Aaron's stuff, you can go there. Or you can check him out on the faculty page at Furman. Um, and yeah, I also, go to my YouTube channel, which YouTube I've really channel. been doing a lot of this year. It's called Philosophy for Where We Find Ourselves. Okay. And what I do there, there's some Christian stuff, but it's mainly four to five minute daily attempts to let philosophy be a way of life. And so there's a lot of mountain bike riding and a lot of trout fishing, uh, you know, stoicism on the river when your rod breaks and uh, <laughs> how, how do you navigate the, the rainstorm while backpacking and you forgot your tarp. Uh, so that's been a thing the last year or uh, year and a half during COVID that I've really tried to put my energies into is I'm still writing books that, you know, scholars read and everybody else ignores, but I'm more and more interested in speaking and thinking and engaging and inviting others to be philosophers, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether we are mechanics or physicians or, uh, you know, marketing directors. All of that is secondary to the fact that we've got to figure out how to do life together in a lived space. And I think the best thing we can do for our broken social context right now is not, at the end of the day, preach more Jesus, but live more like Jesus. And I think that that can happen in all sorts of ways. And philosophy for where we find ourselves is my attempt to do that, even though I rarely talk about Christianity explicitly there. It is my attempt to be a Christian in the ways that I think, uh, you know, Christ calls us to be. That's really neat. Well, Aaron, we want to say thank you for coming on and talking with us. I think this has been a really fun conversation. Um, and I think it's been pleasure. helpful to clarify a lot of things. And I obviously commend going and finding your stuff, reading it, because I found it helpful as I've tried to understand um, the tradition and everything. So thank you, number one. And for our listeners, I do go check it out, find his stuff. It's it's easily accessible. And thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.